Um, if you would turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. 1 John 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the, or which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you, too, may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these sayings, um, these sayings so that our joy may be complete. If you would uh, pray with me before we jump into this passage. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you uh, for who you are, Lord. God, we thank you for this letter of 1 John, Lord. I pray as we enter into this season, Lord, of studying 1 John, Lord, that we are entering into a season of deep fellowship, Lord. Lord, uh, I pray that um, our church just grows in our love for one another, Lord, and a love, Lord, that's not just a love for people, Lord, but your word specifically says a love for the brethren, for those that, that are saved, those that are church. Lord, we, we are called to have a love for those that are lost. I'm not saying that, Lord, but I pray for a deep love for one another that are saved within Country Oaks, Lord, that we can be a witness, Lord, that that love is inspiring and is a witness to our community, Lord. That people come and see us and go, what do they have that we don't have, Lord? And that we can proclaim the gospel, that we can proclaim the good news, your son, Lord. God, I pray for that for our church, Lord. And I pray as we enter into the season that we are excited to grow deep roots and, and love for each other, Lord. So be with us this morning. In your son's name, amen. We're starting the book of 1 John, which I, I know we all know. Um, I want to, before we get going, do a quick intro to the book. And this is more just information, getting us uh, familiar with what's going on with First with John. And uh, we'll get more background information as we go through the epistle of First John. Um, so I'm going to try to be as quick as I can. There's three points that I think will help us understand why this letter was written. And the three points are just, who is the author, the reason for writing, and theme. Okay. I want to jump into these first four verses, so let me go through this real quickly. The author is John. It's named after him, 1 John. The epistle itself does not identify the author, but there is strong, consistent early testimony of the church that John was the one that wrote this epistle. No one really questioned that until the 20th century where we questioned everything. So the author was John. The writing styles, of course, because the author is John, are very close to 2nd and 3rd John and the Gospel of John and Revelation where John identifies himself as the author. It is probably written around 90 to 95 AD, making John at this point a very old man. Most likely the last living apostle. The style of this epistle is actually pretty unique. It's not like a, a typical epistle, which that word epistle just means letter. They're, they're letters uh, to the church. Right? And we see a lot of letters in the New Testament to the churches. John does not have, or First John does not have an introduction. It doesn't have an, a conclusion like most of the letters um, that we see, most of the epistles. Instead, John just jumps right into the context. I mean, look at verse 1. First John chapter 1, verse 1 just says, That which was from the beginning. And John, John doesn't start like a typical letter which would say something like, I, John, am writing to you, Ephesus. That's what most Pauline letters look like. He starts instead of just, just addressing the issue right away. Because of this, most people think that this letter was a, a general epistle or epistle that was meant to be passed around to the churches. It probably was originally written to the church at Ephesus or at least the churches in Asia Minor where John was a pastor for a long time. We learned this from extra-biblical testimony uh, historians from that, that day and age and the early church. But this fits. As you read this letter, he, he writes, John, he writes First John in a very pastoral or even more fatherly way. It's very warm, and I think that's why so many people love this letter. I don't know how many of you were excited to hear that we were going to jump into First John. 
It's very warm, yet straightforward. And actually, I, to be honest, through seminary, I never really studied in-depthly um, First John. And I, I was kind of shocked as I was going through it how just straightforward John is. Because I, I just picture this letter, the, the, the letter of love. And, and it is a letter of love, but John is very blunt, as we'll see as we go through this uh, epistle. It's also very conversational. It, it's kind of like a father talking to a son. That's how, that's how I, I, I hear it when I read through First John. Where the father is restating a few points just over and over and over again. Really wanting to get, get a few points to stick. Because of this, it's really hard to outline. It's actually the hardest book I've ever tried to outline, and I've been changing my outline. I probably will throughout this series. I, I couldn't find one commentator or pastor that agreed on a, a like larger outline, like not even the fine points of the outline, but the, like the three main divisions or something like that, and, and no one agrees on it. It's just a hard book to outline because it was meant to be a conversation and not something like Paul writes in a, in a very like, uh, logical method. And so it's easy to outline Paul's argument. John is talking, right? And so I think the outline isn't as important as the reason for writing and the theme. So let's jump into the reason why John wrote 1 John. And the reason's simple. There's false teachers threatening the church. There's false teachers threatening the church. And these false teachers were successfully leading people astray. As we read through 1 John, we'll see that. And there's two main areas that these false teachers were, were leading people astray. One was doct- uh, doctrinally or theologically, right? They, they were denying that Jesus was fully human, that he, w- he was man, that, that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. They denied that he was 100% man. They were leading uh, uh, people away uh, theologically and they were leading people away ethically. They taught that it didn't matter if you, if you lived a righteous life or not as a Christian. They taught that it didn't, didn't matter if you treated others with love. And we get this mainly from just reading the epistle. Have you ever read an epistle and, and kind of tried to figure out what's going on? It sometimes reads like, and just think about this, hearing a phone call from one side. If you, hear, if you hear someone talking on the phone, you're not in the conversation, you're outside of the conversation, you can kind of guess what the other side is saying, but you hear the one side for sure. Well, that's how we, we, we can kind of understand what's going on the other side, and, and there's really good guesses to what's going on. After reading First John, it, it's like reading that one-sided conver- er, conversation, and you can guess the other side. And most people have their guesses that these false teachers were some kind of Gnostics. Gnostics, that's a new word for you. I want to talk about that for a second. Gnosticism is a, is a heretical teaching or a heretical belief that plagued the, the early church. It's somewhat hard to define because there was no central authority or book. Right? There's a large variety of beliefs that go with Gnosticism. But there's a few core beliefs that's pretty, pretty common throughout all the different uh, um, beliefs that were out there. And, and so let's, let's just talk about those for a second. The Gnostics believed that the physical world was evil. The physical world was evil. It's a very Greek, Platonic type of thinking. That the physical world e- is evil and the spiritual world is the real reality, the, the, the good. Therefore, human beings, they believed, are spiritual beings trapped in physical bodies. Right? They're trapped in, in this evil physical body. That's what they believe in. And they believe salvation was escaping the physical body. That the, the soul being released or the spirit being released from this trap, this, this prison of a physical body. So the Gnostics were very mystical and spiritual in their beliefs. This belief, and, and I just want to say, belief always, always produces uh, practice. What we believe is how we, we act. It will influence how we act. It will produce how we act. And, and this belief really produced two opposite lifestyles. Right? There, there were the, the Gnostics that were very aesthetic or um, very strict self-disciplined. Very legalistic. Denied the ur- urges of the physical body. They said the physical body is evil. So, so they denied all the, the urges and pleasures that the fig- physical body was seeking after. 
we kind of see that this is probably what Paul was writing against in, in Colossians. The Gnostics that, that First John is writing against is the opposite of that. They, they were Gnostics that, that believed in, they were licentious or immoral. In other words, they, they believed that the physical body was evil. It wasn't, wasn't real like the spiritual body. Therefore, it didn't matter what you did with it. You can just do whatever your physical body wants to do, follow the urges because it, it was evil and it didn't matter. That's, that's uh, um, who First John is writing or who John is writing against in First John addressing a very hedonistic uh, group of false teachers. The Gnostics... Right, get their name from the Greek word gnosko, gnosko, which just means knowledge in the Greek, gnosko. They believe that salvation, the reason they got this name is they believe salvation came from gaining a secret knowledge. Because of this, it created the haves and have-nots, right? Those that had the knowledge and those that didn't. And the haves who had this secret knowledge treated the have-nots with contempt. Right, the haves treated the have-nots with, without love. Right. So that leads to the theme of First John. That's kind of the background of what most people think w- was going on um, and why, why John wrote this letter. But here's the theme, and, and I really believe it's summed up in one verse in First John. That's First John 5.13, which says this, I write these sayings to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. That word know, remember, that's where the Gnostics got their name from, gnosko, that you may know that you have eternal life. I am writing you that you may know you have eternal life. And John hits three, three areas that if you've been born again, that if you are saved, the work of the Spirit will produce three things. And he hits this theme over and over and over again. So these are the three, three uh, certainties of knowing, knowing that you have eternal life, right? If the Holy Spirit produces a correct understanding of Jesus, that's the first theme. A deep desire to keep God's law. And a deep desire and love for the brethren. John is writing that you may know you have eternal life, and and he says if, if you've been born again and the Spirit is working within you, you'll have a correct understanding of who Jesus is, a deep desire to keep God's law, a deep desire to love the brethren. As we'll see, he's not saying that we're perfect, but there'll be a desire in these things. So you see these three themes over and over and over again. And we'll talk more about the background of what's going on in First John as we go through the book. But I really wanted to dive into Scripture this morning. So if you would, look at First John chapter 1, verse 1. I just want to look at the first four verses this morning. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we have testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the, the Father and was made manifest to us. That's, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. As I read that this morning, any of you guys feel like that kind of sounded like a, like a Dr. Seuss book almost? It, to be honest, when I first was studying this, I'm like, okay, what is going on here? It's almost funny that this is the first, this is... In every seminary, just about, this is the first passage you translate when you start learning Greek. And I wonder if it's a joke because it's so kind of confusing to figure out what's going on. It's actually, it's actually very simple Greek. That's why they do it. But the, the English that comes from it it, it, it sounds a little bit like a Dr. Seuss book to me. Well, I believe if you can answer three questions, you can understand this, this intro very simply answer three questions, you can understand this intro very simply. And sticking with the Dr. Seuss uh, theme here, here's my three questions that you, you should be able to answer. The first one is this. What is which? What is which? And this will make sense, and just stick with me. If, you're not, if you weren't confused, now you are. Right, just joking. What is which? The second question is this. Who is we? 
Who is we? And the third question is this. Why are the so that's? Why are the so that's? So let's just jump right into it. The first question is this. What is which? Which. What is the which? This relative pronoun that we keep seeing over and over and over again. The word which. You see which six times in the first four verses. Which four times in the very first verse. Look at verse one. Which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Now look at the second part of verse 2. Which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And verse 3, which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So what is this which? Right? What is the which referring to? Which is a, is a pronoun, right? which means it takes the place of a noun. So what noun is this relative pronoun replacing? That's the question we're trying to ask, right, and answer. Well, look at verse 1, and I think you'll see it. That was with, that was, or that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The word of life. The antecedent to the pronoun which is the word of life. Meaning you could replace which with the word of life. The word of life was from the beginning. The word of life we have heard. The word of life we have seen with our eyes. The word of life we've looked upon and have touched with our hands. And of course the word of life is, I heard it, Jesus, right? Seems simple. But here's where it gets a little interesting. We don't see this in English. But the relative pronoun, which in Greek is not masculine, as you would expect, since it's Jesus. It's neuter. It's neuter, meaning it reads like this. If I can try to make it, kind of capture it in English, it would be something like this. It was from the beginning. It we have heard. It we have seen with our eyes. It we looked upon and have touched with our hands. If this is talking about Jesus, shouldn't the pronoun, the relative pronoun, be masculine, he? Well, most commentators agree. And I want to read what F.S. Bruce says because I think he captures it really well. Okay, This is what he says. If we ask who it was that they heard and saw, the answer is that they heard and saw Jesus. But if we ask what it was, the answer is that they heard his words and they saw his works. In other words, when John proclaims, proclaims Jesus, he's also proclaiming his words and his works, what he did. In other words, when he proclaims Jesus, he's also proclaiming the good news, the gospel. I think it's important that we understand this because when we proclaim the gospel, the good news... We're proclaiming a person, Jesus. And it works the other way around, too. When we proclaim Jesus, we are proclaiming the good news. And here's the point, and I think this is what John is getting at. If you don't have the right Jesus, you don't have the gospel. Therefore, the truth about Jesus is extremely important. In the first two verses, John gives us three truths about Jesus that are, that are vital to the gospel. The first truth is this. Jesus is from the beginning. And Jesus is from the beginning. Look at verse 1. Which was from the beginning. Where do we know that word beginning from? Genesis, right? right? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning. In the beginning what? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Turn with me to John, the Gospel of John 1 1. I'm going to have a hard time through this whole entire series with getting John and 1 John. When it, when it's the Gospel of John, I'll try to say the Gospel of John. So we're going to go back and forth. The Gospel of John 1 1, which I'm sure most of you have memorized. It says this In the beginning, but it should be God, right? Genesis, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God. No, it's not that. In the beginning was the Word. Was the Word. Logos in Greek. 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word we see as we read through, through John, the first chapter, was Jesus. Jesus was God. In 1 John, by saying, which was from the beginning, John is making a claim that Jesus is divine. He's from the beginning. When you think of Genesis, Genesis 1.1, what did God do in the beginning? He says, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created. Well, look, you're in, you should be in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 2. He, this is the word, this is Jesus, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. John is saying, in the beginning, Jesus created. That's because Jesus and the Father are one. Claiming the doctrine of the Trinity here. And, and this fits Scripture really well. Right? We see this over and over again. Right? In the beginning, God created. Right? That concept, John, John chapter 1 and 1 and 2 grabs that concept. Well, so does Hebrew 1 verse 1. You don't need to turn if you want there. You can. I would just make a note of this. L- listen to what it says. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says, Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, and of course that's Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Meaning God, through Jesus, created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's Jesus. That's a bold statement. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. Colossians 1.15, make note of this one. He is the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Of course, that's not firstborn as he was created, as some try to make that say. It's firstborn in the biblical sense. Like, like David was the firstborn, even though he wasn't the firstborn. He's the heir, he's supreme, he's first of all things. Verse 16 says this, For by him all things were created. In the beginning God created. In the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. That's amazing. For Jesus. And he is before all things, and and in him all things hold together. Sometimes I just wonder if, if the cross that he was hung on was being held together by the word of his power, by him. Verse 16 says, or that's what verse 16 says. Turn back with me to 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. That which was from the beginning. Okay, so who is which? Jesus. Jesus. Therefore, who is from the beginning? Jesus. John is claiming that Jesus is divine. That's the first truth. Jesus is from the beginning. He's divine. He is God. The second truth is this. Jesus was historical and physical. Look at verse 1. Which, right, that's Jesus. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Jesus was physical. He was a man. We see the, the same claim in the Gospel of John. Remember uh, John 1.1 1, 1 said this, in the beginning was the Word, right, Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, verse 14 says this, and the Word, right, the Logos, became flesh. Jesus was a historical, physical person. Right? The Gnostics were saying that there's no way Jesus could be physical. He's, the physical is evil. Right? That was their claim. So they said Jesus wasn't physical. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt in Greek means tinted. 
He set up a tent. He, he tabernacled with us. And we have seen, like physically seen, his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen, Jesus was from the beginning. He was divine, but he was also a physical man. Again, we see this throughout the New Testament. Romans 1, 3, concerning his son, who was a descendant from David, according to the flesh. Right? He was a human being. He was a descendant of David. He was flesh. Galatians 4, 4. But when, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. 1 Timothy 3, 16. Great indeed, we confess, in the mystery of godliness, he, this is Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. Jesus was flesh. The first truth is Jesus is divine, 100% fully God, divine, which was from the beginning. Second truth is Jesus was fully human. 100% fully human, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. This leads us to the third truth. Our third truth is, is that the word of life reveals, reveals. Look at the last part of verse 2. Which, again, who is which? It's the word of life. This is Jesus. Which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The incarnation of Jesus, Jesus becoming a man, was, was made manifest to us. The Greek word for manifest there means to cause to become visible, right? To make appear, to make visible, to cause to be seen. It literally means to reveal, to reveal. The word of life was revealed to us, in other words. John is saying God revealed himself in the person of Jesus, right? That's what Colossians 1.15 means when it says he is the image of the invisible God. Think about that. He is the image of the invisible God. Let me just say that backwards. God is invisible, right? He's spirit. You can't see God. He's invisible, right? That's the problem that that the Israelites had in the Old Testament. They wanted to see God and touch God, so they made idols. God said, don't make idols. I'm invisible. But he's visible in Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. One of the reasons he is called the word, the word of life. I mean, I get life, right? Jesus came to bring life. The gospel of John, the good news, right? For John 1, 4 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Or John fourteen six, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus brings life, new life when, when we are born again, when we put our faith in, in him and, and God regenerates us, right? We're born again believers, but eternal life too, when we die and we spend eternity with Jesus. Jesus is the life, but why the word? In the gospel of John, John 1, 1 just says, in the beginning was the word, logos, First John 1 John 1.1 says, concerning the word, logos, of life. Why the word? Why is this word logos? Now, there's so much meaning behind this. And, and I really want to read two commentators that I think grasp this really well. Why the, the word, word? This is what one commentator said. Why does Jesus Christ have this name, the word? Because Christ is to us what our words are to others. Our words reveal to others what we are thinking and how we feel. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about James 3. Words, the tongue, right? Words reveal who we truly are, right? Words reveal what's going on inside our heart. In a similar way, Christ reveals to us the mind and the heart of God. He is the the living means of communication between God and man. In other words, to know Jesus is to know God. Another commentator put it this way, the phrase, word of life, is in tune with the high uh, Christological note in 1 John chapter 1, teaching that the eternal, preexistent, fully divine Son came into the, the world as the revelation of God. 
He is the voice, the image, the embodiment of God. Through him, God is made audible, visible, and touchable. Isn't that what Jesus said about himself? John 14, 9, whoever sees me has seen the Father. Therefore, the which in the first four verses, that relative pronoun is Jesus, who is, who is 100% divine, who is God, who is 100% man, and who is the revelation of the Father. Look at verse 3. That which, Jesus, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. That's the main verb of this whole entire first four verses. We proclaim to you. Proclaim to you. So this leads me to my second question. Right? Who is we? Who is we? I think you're following along now. It's another, another pronoun that's repeated, we. Right? This we is used six times in the first three verses. Look at the second part of verse, verse 1 which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Right? We is a, is a, is a pr- pronoun, meaning it's a replacing a noun, just like, just like the, the which is. We is, is a personal plural pronoun, right? meaning the noun is a group of people. It's a group of people. So who is this group of people? Another way of asking this, just listen to this. When John says we, is he including us, the reader? Is, is it an inclusive we? Or is he excluding us, the reader? In other words, saying us and not you. Right? An exclusive we. Well, look at verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify and proclaim to you. It's an exclusive we. We, not you, in other words. So then who is this group of people? Let me ask it this way. Who has heard, who has seen, who has, who has physically touched Jesus for three years? The apostles. The apostles. John is saying, we, the apostles, have heard, we have seen, we have touched Jesus, and now we proclaim him to you, the reader who haven't physically seen, who haven't physically touched, who hasn't physically heard Jesus. John is saying, we, the apostles, have experienced Jesus, and now we proclaim him to you. Or or look at verse 2. It's this. And it just makes sense. The life was made manifest. That's Jesus. And we, the apostles, have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it to you, the reader, to us, the church. And there's four ways the apostles experienced Jesus. Look at verse 1. We have heard. We have heard teachings, parables, sermons, private words of instructions, personal counsel. We have heard. We have seen. We have seen a real man, not an illusion, in other words. Not only that, we looked upon. That Greek... Has, has this connotation of, of a long staring gaze. Not only have we seen, but we've looked into it. The apostles spent several years and they saw Jesus. They saw, they saw a supernatural power over demons, disease, sickness, natural world, death. They saw firsthand Jesus' authority. They have touched, physically touched Jesus. It just always amazes me. They physically touched the creator of the universe. The apostles had a deep, rich, intimate experience of Jesus. And listen, it was exclusive to them. It was exclusive to them. Think of John, who leaned his head on Jesus' chest. John 13, 23 says this, and one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, this is John, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Verse 25 says this, so that disciple leaned back against Jesus, against his chest. Think of Thomas, 
Thomas. Gospel of John 20, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands and put your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I mean, this is a blessed group of men. Jesus even calls them blessed. This is Luke 10, 23. Then turning to the disciples who become apostles, turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that have seen what you've seen. You guys are blessed for what you have seen and experienced. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you have heard and did not hear it. This is what John is talking about. Look at verse 2 again. The life was made manifest. It was revealed. And we have seen it and testify it and, and proclaim it to you, the church. The eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, the apostles. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, the church. God revealed himself through his Son to the apostles who now proclaim him to us, the church. Listen, we as a church know Jesus through the apostles. The church in Ephesians 2, 19 through 20 was, says it was built on the foundation of the apostles. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20 says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's the church. Built on the foundation of the gospel, or the, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Like the apostles are foundational to the church. I want you to think about that. Remember why John wrote this epistle? confronting false teachers. And John's saying, hey, we're in an exclusive club here. Don't listen to those guys. Listen to us. We think about these false teachers. They're probably Gnostics. Again, they're saying that Jesus couldn't have been physical because the physical universe is evil. So somehow he wasn't physical. And John is saying, I was there. He was physical. John is appealing to his, his apostolic authority. So the which is Jesus. Right? The we are the apostles. And that leads to the third point this morning. Why are the so that's? Look at verse 3. Verse 3. That which, again that's Jesus, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus also to you so that we, the apostles, in other words, proclaim Jesus to you so that. If I had to guess the next line before studying this passage, I would have said something like, we proclaim Jesus to you so that you may have eternal life. I was actually surprised and kind of contemplating and think about this for a while. This is what he says. We proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship. Fellowship. It's not what I would have guessed. We proclaim Jesus to you so that you may have fellowship. The Greek word is uh, koinonia. It means a close association involving close mutual relationships and involving a shared life, literally a shared life. Biblically, it's far more than just a partnership of those who have similar beliefs. Rather, biblically, that word fellowship It means this, it is a mutual life of love for those who are one in spirit. I want you to think about this for a second, and I've mentioned this before from the pulpit. But the Old and New Testament, when people are saved, they're always saved into a community. They're always saved into a community. The Old Testament, the community was Israel. The New Testament, the community is the church. In the middle of that community is God. Old Testament was the tabernacle, and after the tabernacle was the temple, where God's special presence was found. He tabernacled. In other words, he fellowshiped with his people, 
shared life. The New Testament, again, I read this earlier, John wrote in the Gospel of John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He, 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 he lived with us. He dwelt, it means, that word dwelt means tinted. It points back to the tabernacle. He tabernacled with us. He fellowshiped with us. And you're saying, well, I thought the us were the apostles and not the church. Well, look at the Great Commission. Matthew 29, 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is with the church, with the community. Fellowship with the church. Think of Paul on the road to Damascus. Acts 8.3, it says this, Paul was ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. You just think about that, that, that was happening. Paul was persecuting the church heavily. He was on his way to Damascus to do that, and God knocks him off the horse, and Acts 9, 4 says this, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There's such a close connection between Jesus and the church that Jesus says, why are you persecuting me when he was persecuting the church? The church is his body. It's his bride. Revelations 1, 12 says this, and I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, which we learn those seven golden lampstands are, are, are the churches that are supposed to be the light to the world. And verse 13 says this, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, that's Jesus. Old and New Testament, when a person is saved, he's saved into a community, and in the middle of that community, in the midst of that community, was God. God wants us to be a communal people. God wants us to have fellowship with each other and with him. It makes sense. He's a communal God. Right? He's the Trinity. Look at verse 3 again. We, again, this is the apostles, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Again, this is interesting to me. It's not what I would have written. John doesn't say, we proclaim Jesus to you so that you may have fellowship with God. That wouldn't make sense to me. He says, so that you too may have fellowship with us, with the apostles. Then he says, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Here's the point. Again, there is no fellowship with God outside of the testimony of the apostles. There's no fellowship with God outside the testimony of the apostles. John is appealing to his apostolic authority here. And that's a strong appeal. And you might be thinking, well, wait, 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 I've heard Jesus. Right? The red letters in scripture, that's, that's Jesus. Who are the red letters written by? Either an apostle, right, or a close associate or a disciple of an apostle, right? Mark was a close associate and wrote what Peter told him to write, and Luke was a close associate with Paul. Yes, inspired by, by God, therefore God's the author, and the apostles are author. We believe in dual authorship of Scripture. This is why we as a church have such a high value on Scripture. The New Testament Scripture is the testimony of the apostles to us. Look at verse 3 again. We, again, this is the apostles, proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Again, interesting. Our joy may be complete. If I was writing it, and thankfully I'm not writing this, that the apostle inspired by God wrote this, it doesn't say your joy. I would, I would guess it would say that your joy may be. We proclaim to you that your joy may be complete. But he says our joy. Why? Well, it goes back to the idea of fellowship. John is saying, if you have fellowship with us, our joy becomes your joy. And when we see your joy filled, 
our joy is filled. We proclaim Christ to you that you may have joy so that we will have joy in our fellowship. Didn't we see that last week? When Jimmy was up here preaching, talking about a, a man at a bus stop where he shares the gospel and, and God changes that man's heart and, and, and the joy that Jimmy had while he was up here. You could barely talk. Both services, I sat through both services. You could barely get through it without crying. The joy he had. Every time I've shared the gospel and, and, and God's brought about salvation, I'm filled with joy. I'm filled with joy. And the amazing thing is that person's filled with joy too. And we have a fellowship of joy. It's a shared joy. Interesting about 1 John is it's the only time that word joy is used. I think I was also surprised as I was making an outline just how long First, I, th- I think of 1 John as a real short book. It's actually a little bit longer than I expected. In this longer book, joy, that word joy is used once, and this is it. But the idea of joy runs through the entire epistle. Because here, John connects joy to fellowship. And fellowship is a major theme in the book of 1 John. It's a major theme in the book of 1 John. John is saying something like this. Make our joy complete by having fellowship with us, the apostles. And if you have fellowship with us, the apostles, you have fellowship with God. And if you have fellowship with God, you have joy. That's what the Gospel of John 15, 11 says. These sayings I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be filled. For John, fellowship and joy are connected. Fellowship and joy are connected. Listen, I, I love our church. I, I unashamedly absolutely love our church. I've grown up here my, my whole life. Since I was nine, we moved here. I've been here. And don't get me wrong, I've been frustrated with our church a number of times. <laughs> but I love our church. I'm just thinking through, talking to Edith Reed. She's my sixth grade Sunday school teacher. Just thinking through that. At first service, I was thinking about the Goodells, who Bev led my wife to the Lord in Sparks at age seven, and are still teaching, are still directors of, of Sparks, where my daughter will be next year. There's a joy of the fellowship I have here at COBC, and I know a lot of you feel that joy. I walk through these doors, and it's just home to me. And it's not because of the building, although my dad built half of it with so many men from this church. It's because of the people. So we, as elders, picked First John to go through because we want to focus on fellowship. We want you to experience that joy that's, that's found in fellowshipping with each other. And we really want to emphasize an aspect of how to, how to do that. And that's through small groups. We all agreed as, as elders, because of our size, it's easy to get lost Sunday morning and not feel that fellowship. Not feel that fellowship. So I want to ask you, if, if you're not a part of a small group of some sort, or if you, if you don't have like people in your mind, I have a Tuesday night Bible study that I love going to. It's like our, our intimate group that we've, we're growing together. And we love each other. We pray for each other. If you don't have that, I mean, consider joining a small group somewhere. Either a small group uh, Sunday morning, an ABF group, right, that starts at 9. Or a midweek small group. We're going to start calling them growth groups because we really believe that that's where growth happens is in those intimate small groups. Listen, deep, rich, joy-filled fellowship can happen in a church our size. And I know it because I feel it and I see it. We just need to be intentional. I want to end with a couple of challenges to the church. And this is the first challenge. If you are, when I'm talking about walking in here and feels like home, if that's you, if you're like, I love this church. This, I, I just, I love the fellowship here. This is family. If that's you, invite people into that family. I challenge you. Look for people Sunday morning and introduce someone to someone you don't know. And ask him, are they a part of a small group? And if they're not, say, hey, why don't you come to our ABF or our small group? 
If you're new to Country Oaks or if you've been here for a while and it just doesn't feel like family yet, I, I challenge you, intentionally seek out a small group. Intentionally seek out that fellowship. Smaller group of people to, to build a deep fellowship with. Now, I'm just going to say this. I, I, see, I hear people say that. And like I, the joy I feel in the fellowship that we have here, I'm like, how could you not? And, and I see people come in, and they'll come in late and sit in the back and just kind of go like this and leave early. And I'm like, well, I'm challenging you. L- look, for, look for a small group. If you consider this your church, if you're a member or not, but you consider this your church, there's three things that, that we like to see you do. There's three words that we're going to hear over and over and over again. First one's this, worship. Of course, we want to see you live a life of worship. That's, that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But we also want to see you come for corporate worship, where we get together as a family and worship together. Sunday mornings, we do that. So you're here. You're doing that. You guys online, come. So worship. The second thing we'd like to see you do is grow. And we believe growing happens best in smaller, intimate groups. So can you think of that group? the people that are helping you grow, that keep you accountable, that encourage you, that love you when you need love. If you don't have that, look for it. And the third thing is serve. We want you to serve the body, the local body here, Country Oaks. Worship, grow, and serve. Next few months, we're going to be in First John. And I encourage you to read First John if it's just a part of it. But I challenge you, read the whole thing daily. It takes me about 20 minutes to read it, and I am a very slow reader. So it's probably less, 15 minutes for most of you. Read it daily, and I would encourage you and ask you as a church to pray for deep fellowship at COBC, at Country Oaks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. God, we thank you for inspiring John to write this epistle. Thank you that you're a God that that is a communal God, Lord. It's a God that wants us to have fellowship, Lord. I pray for deep, rich, joy-filled fellowship here at Country Oaks, Lord, that's so inspiring that people want to be a part of it. Even non-Christians see it and go, wow, they have something, Lord. What is that? Help that be part of our testimony, Lord, how we love each other. And I pray that love overflows as we share the gospel to others. In your son's name, amen.